Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the third weekend of November 2022. Only one weekend left in this month and we'll be into December already. It's hard to believe it's going that quickly, just a little over a month away. Well, right at a month away from winter solstice and the sun has definitely been setting earlier and earlier with our time change. The sun is now setting between 3.30 and 4. With some sunny weather this past week, I went out to watch the sunset and watch it drop below the horizon. And at least from O'Connell Bridge here in Sitka, its southernmost point of setting is kind of by what folks call Six Mile Rock, or if you look on the map, it's Kulichkov Rock. And it's got a little ways left to go till it gets down that far south, as we might expect. But the rate of change has definitely slowed. That sunny weather was accompanied by unseasonably warm temperatures, especially the first day. A drastic change from our sunny spell early in the month when it was one of the earlier cold outflow, Arctic outflow events. This time the high pressure built up from the south and apparently there was a layer of warm air at higher elevations. It was interesting to look at the weather uh, from Harbor Mountain. There's a weather sensor up there uh, that records snow depth and temperature, among other things. And to see very frosty mornings on the second and third day, which I guess would have been Thursday and Friday, but seeing that Harbor Mountain temperatures up at, I think that's at 2,500 feet or so, were still significantly above freezing and at least as warm during the day as they were down lower. Apparently that first day when we set a record for the date, temperature of 54 degrees here at the airport, it was due in part to the wind, which had mixed down some of the warmer temperature and then uh, cooler or uh, calmer conditions the following days uh, didn't allow that wind to mix things down. And so the temperature stayed a little cooler with a temperature inversion. Lots of little variations on the weather. It's always fun to kind of track those. Um, the conversation I have this week, I actually am recording this on Saturday, the day before it airs, and I have in the studio with me my son, Connor. Hello, Connor. Hello. And we will be talking about birds, no doubt, among other things, but we have had some interesting birds this past week here, well, past couple of weeks here in Sitka, including a chipping sparrow, which is an unusual one, and a sandhill crane, which it's not unprecedented to have one this time of year, but I'm... I think it's only happened a couple or three times before when, uh, at least around where folks have noticed it, there's been a sandhill crane. This one's been hanging around uh, near the turnaround and Muller Park and somewhat uh, unfortunately for the folks that are working to keep the birds and the planes from interacting directly, uh, has taken a liking to the airport as well and spent some time over there. But it afforded or has afforded folks some nice looks at it. And it's been fun to see one of those birds, which we don't often see here in Sitka. And Connor, did you get a chance to see the crane this time? Uh, yeah, I got to see it briefly fly over Ceiling Cove to the airport. So you didn't you didn't get a look at it on the ground. It just flew no. over. Yeah, I just heard it and saw it flying over. It's actually only the second crane I've seen on the ground here along the road system. I've seen them over on Kruzoff. On the ground, I saw one at Totem Park a few years ago where it flew some circles and landed briefly on the beach and then flew off again. 
Uh, I have heard other reports of them being at the Memorial Park uh, behind the Sitka National Cemetery. There's the lawn area behind there, the Sitka Memorial Park. Uh, at least in one year and maybe multiple years in the past, there's been a pair that shows up there or has shown up there, usually in the springtime. So it's not unprecedented, but it is unusual to have them on the ground. And then this time of year, I'd have to go back and look in the records, but I'm pretty sure there was one that maybe even made it to the Christmas bird count one year. And I think that one might have been out at Stargavin, but certainly not something we expect to see here. And the chipping sparrow is, I think, only the third chipping sparrow I've seen, maybe the fourth, um, but definitely an unusual sparrow for us. And I think you'd seen it once before. Yeah, I saw it once quite a few years ago over at the airport where it is now. Yeah, and that's two of the three that I've seen were at the airport. One of them was on Jeff Davis Street on an Alaska day. Uh, I was just walking along, and there was a little sparrow in a tree, and I took some pictures and was like, oh, that looks a little different, and turned out to be a chipping sparrow, which was novel for me, although they're, <laughs> they stand out in part because they're just so plain, just little brown sparrow birds that don't look like our other normal sparrows. We've had a few lingering warblers. I know you saw Townsend's warbler this past week, and I don't know if it's the same one. It was a different part of town, but I saw one just a couple of days ago uh, along Kaguantan Street, and uh, it's... Yeah, it's getting to be increasingly late for those. Um, most of them are gone well before now, certainly, and were this year as well. But there's at least an orange crown warbler and a yellow warbler and this Townsend's warbler that have all been seen in the last week. I think you've seen, have you seen all three of them in the past week? Um, I haven't seen the orange crown, but I've seen the other two. Um, and then I also saw some yellow rumped warblers as well. All right. And those are less unusual this time of year. They are able to, as I understand it, uh, digest the wax and some berries, and that allows them to stay a little longer because they can eat more kinds of food than the other sorts of warblers do. So it's not like common, but it isn't surprising when I see them into December and even sometimes after the first of the year uh, lingering into January. But certainly the other species, this time of year when I see them, they're much more often feeding on the ground, and I think they're just finding little bugs and maybe worms or caterpillars or something that are there in the vegetation. Uh, so it is, yeah, it's interesting to see what's out and about. And if you're seeing anything out there, uh, especially anything that seems unusual to you, uh, I'd love to hear about it. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. You can also find recordings of past shows on my website at sitkanature.org slash raven. So we spoke, I think, at the beginning of the year, and I don't honestly remember what all we talked about then. This is the last time you're on the show. Obviously, we speak a lot more than that along the way. Uh, but the, I think we talked probably about goals and maybe some of your ambitions for this year. I think at that time, you're already planning your trip to ADAC, if I remember correctly. Yes, I do believe that was the case. And so that trip ended up being successful in the sense that we made it there. And how would you characterize it in terms of, of the trip itself? It wasn't a bad trip. I enjoyed it. It was a nice trip for being the first birding trip within Alaska that I took outside of Sitka. Um, I didn't get as many Asian vagrants as I was hoping to get out there. I got an awful lot of nor of good ADAC birds, but birds that I see around Sitka quite often, like lesser scop and things of the sort, but I did get a few Asian birds while I was out there. All, and all the breeders for ADAC that I didn't have, I got out there. 
So that was, yeah, as you mentioned, your first trip outside of Sitka. It was my first trip outside of southeast Alaska. I've got a few birds in southeast Alaska that I haven't seen in Sitka, but not very many. Uh, and so this trip, we flew to Anchorage and had to overnight in Anchorage, both coming and going, and then spent a week out on ADAC. We met your uncle and your grandpa out there. And I guess my reflection on it is if you uh, are not in good shape, maybe don't try to keep up with an ambitious um, 20-something that wants to see all the birds, even if there's no birds around. And so <laughs> trying to chase Connor around through the tussocks and tundra was at times a little bit tiring. Uh, although I think you did start to run down a little bit in the middle of the week when you stopped seeing so many new birds. You've gotten all the, the breeding birds and their winds were out of the, quote, wrong direction and things like that. So it seemed like I was for a while there saying, no, we need to keep going. There was a wood sandpiper. We might be able to find it. And you were just seemed like you were ready to go home and take a nap or something. Yeah, it was definitely a psychological thing there when in the middle of the week because the winds were blowing out of the east the entire time we were there. I think there was one day where they blew out of the north, but east is not the direction you want them blowing when you want Asian vagrants. You want it blowing out of the west or the southwest more. Um, but it was just blowing east and southeast pretty much the entire time. And so I did not. After the first few days, I got all the breeders. I got all the ones that had been reported before except for the tufted duck because there had been a birding group out there before I got out there, and so I paid attention to what they had seen. And I'd seen everything that they had reported by that time. Um, and so with the winds in the wrong direction and having tried for the wood sandpiper multiple times, I was not in a very good uh, mindset out there. Yeah, it's interesting how that can kind of go, especially, you know, you make the trip for birds. And, and you know, different people have different approaches. It's something that I reflect on sometimes. I'm disinclined to travel in the first place. But when I'm there, I don't mind being there and looking around. And I certainly wanted to see the birds that were there. But I was I would have liked to spend more time looking at each of the birds that we did see and less time chasing around looking for new birds. Uh, it wasn't ADAC is an interesting place to visit. You can fly there on Alaska Airlines. It's got a big runway. It's got some roads. I think, you know, less roads than we have here in Sitka um, or maybe close to the same distance, but obviously configured a bit different. And it runs through some different areas. And the island itself is pretty good size. You can hike. Uh, well, you can hike. And hunters do hike. Uh, or you can charter a boat and get around to other coves and places on the island. We did make one hike that was, I guess it was about a mile down from the end of the road down to the bay. And then we walked, walked another couple of miles around the bay to an outer spit. And that was that was interesting, but also kind of tiring. It was surprisingly um, challenging walking at times, uh, especially on the beach where there's massive, like, head-sized cobbles turn out to be not much fun to walk on. And above that was these massive tussocks of, I think it was dune grass, um, but they grew in a way that I don't usually see around here. And it was a little little tough to walk, and I guess I walked the worst of that because you just stayed and scoped, scoped for birds out on the uh, out on the horizon, which that was another interesting thing. We could see out there and see some pelagic birds, the albatross and shearwaters and fulmers and, and other alcids. And that's not something I've ever done before. I can't say that it excites me a great deal because you don't 
usually see the birds very well. It's little specks moving through the scope. But what did you what did you think about it? Oh, I enjoyed it because I didn't get to see albatross that much. I had only seen albatross one other time from a plaza trip we made out last year out from Sitka. Um, and so I enjoyed sitting out there and looking through the scope and watching all the pelagic birds fly around. The unfortunate thing was that they did not come very close, so a lot of it was you'd try to ID the tiny little speck out there on the edge of the horizon that you right at the edge of your sight line out there. And occasionally the Laysan albatross would come in close or to ADAC, at least close by what we were looking at standards. Um, and so I got much better looks at those, which was fun watching them fly around. But I, I enjoyed sitting out there and watching them. It gave me a new challenge to do. Well, there is a certain amount of just sort of relaxing and and watching the waves and, and sort of the distant specks swirl around and that sort of thing. Uh, if you were wanting to identify birds, it's a little less compelling or to see, you know, good looks at them, much less compelling. But it was, yeah, it was nice when when we were out of the wind. Sometimes the wind was a little bit much out there. But when we were out of the wind, and the albatross were the exception. You know, those the Laysan albatross, which is more common out in the west uh, here in southeast Alaska, they do show up, but more often we get black-footed albatross. It's just the opposite out there in the Aleutians. And those Laysan albatrosses are really distinctive. They have long white wings and a black body. So even from a distance, I think I, I did a little bit of uh, rough calculations based on the focal length I was using for my camera lens and the size of the pixels and so forth. I could do all the little math there and an estimated size of the albatross based on, you know, what the books say. And the albatross, there were albatross I got pictures of that I could tell were albatross that were approximately three miles away. So that was about as far as I got. I think the close ones were maybe a mile away. So we're not talking close. Maybe maybe they got within a mile or a little closer than a mile. But even then, they were still pretty far away. Uh, distinctive because of their you know high contrast between the wings and the body and their large size, of course. But still quite quite distant. Uh, I imagine in some kinds of weather, they might come in closer. Maybe if you get lucky and spend enough time out there. But yeah, I wouldn't feel like I wanted to go out there because part of what I like about birding is getting nice pictures and there was not nice pictures to be had of those birds out there but it was just like I remember one day sitting there we're sitting on the slopes and it's a bluff kind of over the water and we're up I don't know maybe it's the old Loran station that the Coast Guard used to run out there and I'd say this may be 75 feet above water maybe 50 feet above the the water your uncle had gone down below to look at tide pools and we were just sitting up there and the sun came out that day it was not out very often while we were there but it did come out a little bit it was reasonably warm and i was tucked down in a in a tussock or maybe i had gone around to the side that was in the lee side of of the bluff and so it was a little less windy there and it was just it was nice to relax and every once in a while you know, look, you had a spotting scope. I was mostly just using my camera. And sometimes you say, oh, there's a there's a bird of a certain sort. And so then I'd try and find it in my camera and take pictures. And sometimes it'd be like, well, I think there's a different looking bird there. But it's a tiny little speck with slightly different variations in color. So, <laughs> uh, But it was interesting. Over time, we got better at, you know, picking out the puffins were pretty distinctive. Horned and, and tufted puffins as they were flying. They were probably only like a quarter mile away or a half mile away or something. But you could still tell what they were in the ancient mirrorlets. And I'm sure that people that do that kind of sea watch thing all the time, 
just like people who do hawk watches, we get better and better at being able to identify things further and further by, you know, subtleties of flight pattern and that sort of thing. Um, but certainly as a novice to that style of birding, that was not really super compelling to me. Might have been, uh, you know, for the birding part of it. Um, might have been interesting to be out there with somebody who really knew what they were doing. Of course, I'd have to take their word for it. They'd say, oh, there's such and such over there. And then be like, okay, how do you know? <laughs> and they could tell me and I'd say, okay, uh, I'll take your word for it. But it is it is interesting to observe people with that kind of expertise. Is that the sort of thing that you think that you might want to do more of, that sort of sea watching with a scope? Yeah, that I, I enjoy doing that sort of thing. Um because it's, I don't get to see those birds very often, um, and so, and it is provides me with a new challenge to do. I find it more enjoyable to try to identify those things. Like even the birds around here, when I see them flying, like the crows, the ravens, the eagles, I will be. I'll think to myself, "All right, that is a raven," and then I'll put my binoculars up on it to double check to see if I'm right or not. And sometimes I'm right, and sometimes I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, fair enough, but you're seeing those with your bare eyes. You can't even see the ones with your bare eyes that we were looking at. I got to see some of the albatross when they flew within a mile. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe just those ones you could see. But yeah, yeah. it was. Um, I, I do that as well. I feel like that's a, a good way to um, a good way to practice the the sense of of what birds you know you know their their sort of way that they move and those sorts of things. But it is, yeah, it's still a different thing to sit out for. Um, I, I don't sit and, and watch the birds flying over and try and guess the ones that are, you know, 5,000 feet up or something like that. And um, which sort of eagle or raptor. But I guess that's what they're doing in hawk watches. So, and I haven't done one of those either. But um, I, it did make me curious, like if you were to set up, you know, I guess here closer to town on the end of the causeway, especially in sort of stormy weather sometimes of year, or if you were to get out at the Cape, uh, on cruise off, which maybe not so easy. By that point, it might be easier just to have a boat and be out there. But maybe if you could get dropped off and spend some time with a spotting scope out there, just watching stuff, you know, what might you see going by? Um, I don't know, you know, if stuff's coming in close enough, often enough for it to be worthwhile. I mean, you spent some time out there on a boat this summer. And so, yeah, what did you, what did you, what, what would you think about the potential for some sorts of kind of sea watched stuff? With spotting scopes. Oh, from the Cape, you could do it. We got, I fished, and there's black-footed albatross, at least, that would come in. They'd come in probably about a mile or closer from the Cape, and they'd come in and hang out with the boats or do circles around through the boats and stuff and then go further out. So I think it's definitely possible out there. The sheer waters seem to, um, when I was out there in the fall, the short, what I thought were mostly short-tailed shear waters, but there are some sooties in there as well, um, seemed to migrate. It just seemed to be like there was a band they were following or something because they would stick within a like a quarter-mile stretch of ocean and just fly lines down the coast. You'd see them coming, and just they'd keep going, and that was like a mile or two off the Cape, so you could probably see them from up on top. And that's like on a nice, sunny, calm day, and the weather wasn't even bad out there those days. Well, it does bring up bring to mind something i think that is worth mentioning that you might be doing that for different reasons if you're doing it because you want to see birds 
maybe not unless you're unless you're just a real pure lister and that's good enough you know as as i've heard i guess not even jokingly uh, a, a story i mean it was told sort of as a joke an amused way but the story was that somebody there was a bird out in the illusions maybe it was even on that too and somebody was climbing up to get a better look at it and somebody else yelled up to them to see if they could even identify it. It kind of flown up this little bluff thing. And somebody from down below yelled up and said, did you get a good enough look at it that I can count it? And um, so their concern was much more about, you know, if they saw anything and somebody was able to identify the bird, that was good enough for them. It goes on their list. Uh, that's less compelling to me. I know that there are other people that, uh, you know, different people have different styles for their birding. But for those sorts of things, if you want to have um, a sense of abundance and you want to know what's, you know what's going on with populations and so forth, then having kind of systematic ways of looking at things, that's what I know they do with hawk watches. I think hawk watches are less about you, you know how many getting people good looks at birds and much more about documenting the occurrence and the abundance of species in a systematic way that allows you to make comparisons over time. So if you could set up a sea watch sort of thing and like we don't know how many shearwaters are moving off the coast here and so if you spent a couple of weeks out on cape edgecombe and just were scanning there and you were just seeing and they're all moving from north to south or vice versa then that's giving you a sense i mean they could be flying a big circle but it seems like you know that's going to start to give you a sense of oh here's how many are moving by if you were to do that over the you know multiple times over the course of the season you'd start to get a sense of seasonal movements and and those sorts of things where it's less about seeing a bird to add to your list and more about documenting for, you know, scientific understanding sorts of reasons. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, that's a very different sort of thing than I was out there for, I'll say. And um, at least on that trip than you were out there for, although I could imagine you might enjoy doing, you know, something like that. Yeah, it would. I'd enjoy sitting out there. I, I actually had um, wondered how, because you check in the eBird and stuff, and I'm pay attention to eBird reports coming in from like Gamble and out there where the vagrants come from and you'll see like 10,000 crested oclets or 10,000 short-tailed shearwaters or whatever they post in there. It's like, how do you count that many? I mean, like, sure, it's theoretically possible, but like who's going to sit there with a little clicker and count 10,000 of anything out there? And one, there was a co- comment for a couple of observations posts there um, and apparently what they did was they measured how many went by within a minute. And if it was a steady, like a consistent stream, they would just then estimate the rest of it. Say they watched for 10 minutes and they saw X number go by within one minute and that. And then they just multiply that by 10 and they'd get their estimate for how many were had gone by there. And so apparently that's how they do those sorts of things out there at least. Yeah, I think there are multiple techniques, and that's one of them for estimating large birds. Another one is if there's a flock, you estimate, you know, a patch of it, and then, you know, the relative density of that is similar to the flock overall, and then you're like, how many of these patches? You estimate how many patches, and you just do that kind of multiplication. But obviously at that point, you know, you're hoping for orders of magnitude, um, relatively speaking, rather than exact numbers. So, yeah, it's is it 10,000 or 50,000, you yeah. know, as opposed to is it 10,512 versus 10,617? You know, those that, that sort of thing is going to get swamped in those sort of estimations. But for abundance purposes, you know, it can be useful to have those, those coarse sort of order of magnitude uh, t- sorts of um, measures of, of things just to get a sense of how many there are. And it is difficult. One of the, you know, you're speaking of, 
looking at birds and trying to decide what they are before you look at them with your binoculars, one of the things I like to do is guess how many birds are in a flock before I take a picture and then I, you know, carefully count them later just to practice estimating the the numbers. And we don't have huge flocks flying over here usually. Usually they're sort of in the neighborhood of 10 to I think maybe 250 is the most I've maybe 300 in a flock flying over. Uh, those start to get hard to take a picture of because I usually have my telephoto lens on and, and they get too big to get in one picture. But, uh, yeah, lots of little ways that you can kind of entertain yourself, I guess, with birds that are far away. So the ADAC, you know, we we mentioned the, the breeding birds. That's one of the reasons you might go to ADAC, you know, just to see the birds. There was a number of species there. I mean, I think on the trip total, maybe I got 19 or 20 new species uh, I can't remember. No, maybe it wasn't quite that many. I don't remember. Maybe it was, um, I got quite a few new species anyway. And a number of them were the common breeders there, the common eiders, which we got good look at, looks at. They're right along the shore at times, at other times not so close, but, you know, much better looks than we got of albatross, uh, for sure. And so it was fun to see those. Kitlets and smearlets we got some decent looks at. Uh, the great crowned rosy finches are all over the place. You know, we do see those or can see those here. Uh, they're a little harder to find. The snow buntings were much less common there than the rosy finches, but we did see several snow buntings over the time there. Rock ptarmigan were pretty common. The um, In terms of uh, breeding birds that we don't... Oh, short-eared owl was another one that we saw that we don't see so often here. Um, I guess the red-faced cormorant was another one Yeah, that was new. That was a new one. Arctic loon and Pacific loon, which are very similar, but both of them occur out there. Another species pair that's very similar is common in Wilson's snipe. In both cases, the loons and and the snipe, they were formerly considered a single species, but then split probably the snipes in part because they do both breed in, they both nest on ADAC, and they nest there together in the same marsh, and uh, they sound different when they're winnowing, and so that was how I knew I was seeing them. <laughs> and then they're high enough, you know, I was taking pictures, and I guess one of the ways that, that you distinguish them, I don't remember the details, but is by the pattern or, or shade underneath their wings. And so fortunately, it's easier to get underwing shots when they're way above you. Uh, I wouldn't say that any of them were good shots, but uh, they were good enough shots, uh, photos, to identify those um, those snipes and i'm trying to think what other were there any other nesting oh aleutian tern i guess an arctic tern arctic tern was new for you there but then you ended up seeing it here this summer yeah i saw it here this summer and i'd seen it in anchorage when we went through anchorage but it was arctic tern was definitely one on my list of birds that i wanted to see when i was out there and i suppose the i mean what Got people most excited, I guess. What, and there were a number of other birders there, um, several of whom had hoped to go to Attu, and that's where that trip would start. But it turned out that trip got canceled, and they decided to just go to ADAC anyway. And, uh, you know, as you had mentioned earlier, it was a little bit of a slow trip for Asian birds, which is why most people from North America are going there. They're not so excited about Barrow's Goldeneye showing up and not so excited about Lesser Scops and Pine Siskins, uh, all these birds. Uh, it, it turned out it was a good year for Brambling, but we'd seen Brambling in Sitka, so that was another one that was a little less exciting for us. So we did get to see a white wagtail, and the first evening we were there, we saw a black guillemot, which was actually one of the more, and it probably it was the most unusual bird for ADEC that we saw, and it was a good bird for us too. 
but it was the first record for the Aleutian Islands, apparently, of black guillemot, which is much more of an Arctic bird. Uh, so that was not expected, and we didn't even realize it at the time. I remember you were like, there's something different about this bird. It might be a black guillemot. And I'm like, okay, maybe. You, you know, it's hard to tell because like, the, the distinctive thing is apparently the under wings and how white they are. And this one was transitioning from winter or juvenile plumage into adult plumage. So it was really speckled. Um, and it was sitting there preening not all that far offshore. And you were, I mean, I'd seen it. You were taking pictures of it. And that's when you're like, I think, I think because you're sort of like, got to check out the guillemots. You never know. I don't think you'd realize they'd never been seen in the Aleutians no, before. No, I, I figured the Bering Sea is not that far from the, from the Aleutians. So like, I just expected that they had been seen in the Aleutians before. I think like, there's only maybe even just a few records from St. Paul, and then you got to go up to Gamble and further north. There, are, it's not Bering Sea; it's Arctic. Uh, is it's much more. That's my understanding, anyway. So, and Adak, to be fair, is further south than Sitka is. So it's yeah. it's really far south. It's further south than Ketchikan, even. So, um, so that was a surprise, and one of those that you sort of don't necessarily appreciate as much in the moment because you're like, oh yeah, it's a new bird, but turned out it was a a very unusual bird and unfortunately we didn't mention it to anybody else until later because we didn't even know um but the the most exciting bird by most people's standards there was the black-tailed godwit uh to the pair that we saw there and we actually found those uh on one of those trips that i was like okay we're gonna walk this flat and you're like oh do we got to i was like we're here (laughs) and so after that, it was amazing how fast your energy picked up to go look for more birds. Well, uh, the tufted duck, which I had been looking for all week, was also reported while we were watching those black-tailed godwits. So I was that was one of those situations where it's like, all right, we got the black-tailed do- godwits. Other people are here to watch it. Time to go get that tufted duck because now I already have black-tailed, but I don't have tufted duck now. So it's time to go chase the tufted duck. Yeah, that was one of the ones I would have liked to have stayed a little longer for. As um, It turns out that was probably the most unusual Alaska bird that we saw there. Uh, everything else that we saw occurs in Alaska pretty regularly. I don't know how often black-tailed godwits do, but... They're casual on the state list, so they... So they're, yeah, so casual on the state list, which means that they don't show up anywhere more than every few years. Yeah. Yeah, whereas everything else that we saw is pretty much annual somewhere, yeah, yeah. including tufted duck. So. Yeah, tufted duck is rare. It's I think it's actually annual on... Adak, you can. That was one of the birds on the list that I was like, "All right, this one I have a decent chance of getting." So yeah, in hindsight, I probably would have offered a little more resistance to leaving, um, especially since we didn't ever get another good look at the tufted duck. I mean, I should say at the black-tailed godwit. Well, we saw them again the morning that we left. We were out yeah. There. I said a good look. Yeah. yeah, they flew off pretty quick when we saw them that morning. So. Uh, we didn't we didn't get a great look at those, but it, yeah, it was an interesting interesting to see all those birds out there. It was interesting to be out there with other birders from North America. I think everybody see folks that I remember speaking to the most. There was a couple actually from Europe, or one guy from Europe. I think that mostly lives in North America, and then three I think were from the that live in the Pacific Northwest now, kind of Washington area. Um, and I can't remember where the other ones were. Uh, one one guy that goes there every year. Is uh, from Pennsylvania, and he's been yeah. going there every year for 15 years or so. There was a group from, I want to say, Wasilla? Or they were from, like, Anchorage area, Matsu Valley sort of area as well. Oh, I, yeah, I don't think I ended up talking uh, to them. 
I think I only talked to two of the three people. The third person went out on a boat to go get the auklets that were on nesting on a nearby island. So it is a nice place to go visit. Um, you know, coming from somebody who would rather be here pretty much all the time, it, I I did enjoy the opportunity to see some of those species. And, you know, if I were to go out there again, I would probably, yeah, not run so hard after everything because you never know when things might show up where, you know, you, you, you do almost as well staying in one spot, watching things come by as you do chasing all over the place. You do have radios, which is handy. So being able to hear when other people found stuff, then you could go look for it. Uh, that was nice. Um, but it was, yeah, aspects of it were, were there were nice opportunities to get pictures of things, which is, I realized, part, partly, and I guess it was something that I knew, but it sort of became more evident for me as I was trying to keep up with you who were really more interested. I Like, you wanted to get pictures, but you were more interested in, you didn't care the quality of the pictures. It was like, good enough, I'm going on to the next thing. Like, you were you were there to build your list, and that was your number one priority. And I realize that's not so compelling for me personally. Um, I don't like I'm interested in that, but I feel like I probably would have built my list just as much and got more pictures and more satisfaction if I'd taken more time with the birds that were, you know, available. As they say, the bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, so to speak. Um, It's easy to imagine all the birds that could be just over the hill. um, But then when you get over there, you don't really see much, whereas sometimes you're looking at the bird right there. Uh, Arctic loons, one I kind of wish I had spent more time, or certainly wish I had spent more time on, and I would have liked to spend a little more time with those those godwits. Um, but yeah, I learned something in that respect, just about my own approach and and what is compelling to me. Uh, how about how about you? Any sort of reflections on your approach to birding and and how how it it uh, your understanding of it may have shifted as a result? Well, out there, as it turns out. Yeah, we probably would have just about been better off not trekking all over the countryside, looking for, checking every little beach that is not hard, that is not easy to get to, and all that. I was not warned about the tussocks when I was planning the trip. I was like, oh yeah, we'll just go tromping all over this nice flat. There's no brush out there. There's hardly any trees. It's tundra. It must be real easy walking. Turns out, the three foot tussocks plus all the rat holes and trails and stuff out there was not super easy to walk through. Um, So as it turns out on that trip, yeah, we probably would have been better off not chasing them every little thing. But um, I have, it was more, I like to try to get identifiable pictures. I'll, I'll stay with a bird um, as long as it, as long as I need to, until I feel like I have identifiable pictures of it. And then if there's something else, new to go chase, like if that tufted duck hadn't been reported at when we saw those black-tailed godwits, I would have been fine staying with those black-tailed godwits because those were a new bird. It was a very interesting bird, um, a bird that I, quite frankly, did not expect to see out there. Like your mind can wander about all sorts of things that might turn up out there in a place like that, but you also don't, it's like, well, yeah, sure, potentially, but not likely. Um, and the tufted duck I'd been looking for all week cause it had gotten, I think it had been reported the day before I got there and then hadn't seen it. And so when it was there, that was our last full day there. And so it was like, well, gotta go, I gotta go get that tufted duck. I want to get the, I was almost more excited to get the tufted duck than I was the godwits cause I'd been trying harder for the tufted duck than I had been the godwits. Never mind. You could go there another 10 times and never see the godwit and yeah. probably see the tufted duck every time. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, that, that's true. Well, it is funny how our psychology plays with us uh, in some ways uh, when we when we do those. And from from hearing you talk in the intervening months, uh, it seems that it did not dampen your your uh, ambition or taste for traveling to different parts of the state. No, I Nome is my next is next on my list to go. I don't know if it'll be this coming spring or the spring after that, but I want to get to Nome in the next couple of years to go see what birds I can get out of, see what birds I can get up there. Um, my list of Asian birds won't be quite as long that I hope to see up there. I'll be mostly targeting breeders that I don't, that I can't get easily elsewhere. Um, or that I can't, the diversity up there would be greater of breeders than I would have elsewhere in the state. And so I, that plus the potential for Asian vagrants coming across there would makes it top of my list. And, go for. you know, as a very locally oriented person, I always give you a hard time about chasing, wanting to chase around to, to other places because I'm like, well, you could, who knows what you can find in Sitka. And in fact, you found one of the most surprising in a year, in a year where there were several very surprising new birds for Alaska, one of them came from Sitka that you found that, uh, so what was, what was that bird? And this year is the wedge-tailed shearwater. And what can you tell folks about that one? Um, that one I saw while I was deckhanding on a charter boat, because that's what I did for work this summer, was I deckhanded on a charter boat, which allowed me to be offshore or off the Cape. We didn't, we rarely went more than like 10 miles off the Cape or from the outside of the Cape, but I hung out offshore there. Um, and so I was just out there and I saw shearwater. It was, I had not been doing that job for very long. And so I had not seen lots of shearwaters to get my, it was in the middle of summer and turns out you see shearwaters more often later or in early fall, late summer, at least that's what it seemed like this year than you do in the middle of the summer. Um, and so I hadn't been accustomed, my eye hadn't gotten accustomed to seeing all the, like the so- sooties and short tails and all those normal shearwaters and so I saw a shearwater coming up and I was having a harder time telling fulmers and shearwaters apart like those two fly differently and so you watch them long enough you can tell them apart but I hadn't been watching either one of those long enough to be able to tell them apart and so I was like I think that's a shearwater and then it came by close enough that I could see the white belly it turned and I got a flash of the white belly and I knew that there was no all the regularly occurring shearwaters in the area have are completely dark, so anything with a white belly would be unusual. Um, so I went and grabbed my camera from the cabin and managed to get pictures of it. it I could have gotten closer pictures had my camera cooperated um, like I would have preferred it to, but it didn't. It took a little while before it was... It took like 30 seconds or a minute before it was loaded and ready to start focusing and taking pictures, which irritated me. Because by that point, the bird was like another 100 yards further out than it had started. Um, And so my pictures got, the quality got less and less, and the bird never came back in closer. It only got further out. But it had a surprisingly long tail. That was what stood out to me when I took the pictures of it was, or after I'd taken pictures of it and looked at my pictures, because I was thinking, well, maybe it's a pink-footed shearwater, because that was one that occurs out there more frequently that's got a light belly. Um... And I looked at the tail, and the tail was very long, 
and very pointed at the end. And I'm like, that doesn't seem right for pink footed. I'd never seen a pink footed at the time, but I was like, it doesn't seem quite right. And so I did more looking up in books and stuff when I got home and the, they have a different structure, body structure than pink footeds do as it turns out. Um, and so it did end up being a wedge tail. I thought that's what it was. And by a bird like that, you email people that know what they're talking about with when it comes to birds like that. And everyone said that, yeah, it looked like a wedge tail. So. And for a little bit of context, the wedge-tailed shearwater is one that nests on Hawaii, as I understand it, or in that vicinity, the Hawaiian Islands. But in North America proper, the continental North America, you have to go all the way down to Mexico, pelagic trips off Mexico, to start seeing it consistently. Even in California and Oregon and Washington, it's unusual. I think, is there? maybe you told me the other day, there's just site records from BC. Yeah, there's three site records from BC, as I recall. There's three records from Washington and three records from Oregon that were accepted by the respective checklist committees. Um, And then I think there's seven or 11 California records somewhere in there. And those are places that have pelagic trips where people are going out specifically for pelagic birds, at least monthly, uh, out of of multiple ports. And so it's, yeah, it's interesting as somebody who is... Uh, said that wouldn't have been even on his top 10 for birds to show up, you know, new birds for Alaska. And turned out that there were some other unusual ones. There was a Lucy's warbler that showed up in the interior. Um, there was a... Um, Lee's turn showed up in Anchorage that same week, actually, I think. I think that week the state got three state records. I think they decided that one they couldn't be sure it was a... There's a least and a little turn or something mm-hmm. like that that are... They, I think they decided it's one of those two, but it wasn't... They're, they're difficult enough to distinguish They decided that not they decided it. not to accept it as a species, but a species pair. And then there was the one that showed up in Gamble that I can't remember. It's a yellow bird that's a European bird that they figure probably went over the pole. Oh, yeah, the warbler. Um, yeah, and I don't remember. Citrine is like in the name, but I don't I think, remember. Well, there was a citrine wagtail. Yeah, that was, that was that was like another one. That, um, that showed up in Seward. And, but yeah, in any case, it was a good year for new birds for Alaska, and one of them coming from here, uh, despite your first your first season spending even just a little bit of time out on the water, and you, you find a new state record, and who knows what's out there. I guess you found several other species that were pretty good for this area as well. Yeah, I got, I did end up getting the pink-footed shearwater later in the year. I saw several of those. I um, saw a south polar skua, which was probably second my second favorite bird to see out there was a south polar skua. Um, was the wedgetail your first? Yeah, wedgetail was my first, and then second favorite was South Polar Skua. Um, and then I saw um, Manx, a few, Manx Shearwaters a few times, and I saw um, Buller Shearwater once. Buller Shearwater's um, not rare for the state, but I only saw it once out there. And the Manx and the Pink-Footed are both considered rare for the state, so it's interesting to see. It was interesting for me that I saw more of the pink-footed and Manx waters than I did the bowlers, even though the bowlers is supposed to be the more common one. Um, yeah, it, it's one of those things where, as you mentioned, you never actually went out to the shelf or beyond um, 
while on your trips out there, you were spending most of your time. I think you told me you saw everything. In the end, you saw everything except the pink, uh, the wedge-tailed shearwater within the boundaries of the sound. Like if you drew a line from Cape Edgecombe to Bjorka, kind of the north and the south end, you drew a line across there. That at some point you saw everything within, yeah, on the inside of that line. Although you more frequently saw stuff just inside the cape or just outside the cape, it sounds like. Yeah, and I think that was probably because that's where we fished most of the time, was along that line somewhere. It's hard to see things where you're not. So yeah, that that is true. There's a little bit of that going on, I'm sure. But it is interesting to know because over the years, there's been people out there, fisher, fisher folks of, of various sorts that have at least some interest in birds. Uh, sometimes uh, enough interest to uh, rarely enough interest to supersede their fishing uh, in in terms of where they pay attention. Uh, but sometimes I've seen some photos of folks from folks out there of interesting species. Uh, all the ones that you mentioned are ones that have been reported off Sitka before, with the exception of that wedge-tailed shearwater. But it's it's hard to know. People are out there all the time, but they're not really paying attention to the details of the bird. So for me, it was interesting to have you out there as somebody who, you know, in your downtime between pulling in fish, which it seems like there was plenty of, uh, you had the opportunity to look at the birds and pay attention and, and your interest in seeing new stuff and being able to identify what you were seeing uh, made it so that you were able to start to get a better sense, but it's still only part of a season. So it, it is hard to know, like, is that normal for brillish shear water? Or are you going to find that in other years there's more of them? Maybe where they tend to occur is further offshore. You know, there's lots of little questions like that, that over time, you know, it just takes time and experience out there to start to get a sense of some of those things, I suppose. And so are you interested in doing more of that kind of thing? Yeah, I plan on doing um, another season out there um, next year and seeing what I can, what else I can get out there. Um, I have another couple birds on my Alaska list from that are pelagic birds that I think I have a decent chance of finding out there that I haven't gotten yet. I got pretty much all of them this year, except for with the exception of two. Um, I'm missing a short-tailed albatross and a flesh-footed shearwater. Um, the flesh-footed shearwater was reported later in the year by somebody on a cruise ship, I think, but I wasn't out there at that point. The weather was terrible and the clients were done, so I wasn't out there. But. Well, and there was... Also, the opportunity, the chance to see long-tailed Jaegers are out there, which you'll get one of those in Nome, no doubt, if you get to Nome. But uh, for, for this area, Pelagic is where you're most likely to see them. Uh, there was a red-footed booby, uh, brown booby that have also showed up uh, out on the offshore sort of areas. Not like super far offshore, but um, far enough that you're not going to be likely to see them in town, but you might see them when you're out there. So, yeah, it is interesting. I'll be interested to see what turns up for you in the coming years. Do you have, so you've mentioned doing that and seeing some other birds there and maybe taking a trip to Nome. Is that kind of your, your sort of next steps for birding ambitions? Yeah, pretty much. Um, although I am going to target finding a city grouse around Sitka next spring. Um, that's the only bird that shows up in Sitka regularly. Um, that I do not have as of yet, um, I'm mostly because they're hard to find. Um, and I haven't been out that much in the springtime when they're calling, which is the easiest way to find them, I believe. And so I'm going to put a more directed effort in that way. Um, I did that this year 
for me, that bird was uh, thick-billed myrrh, and I got that in January in Silver Bay, which was where I was looking for it because that's where it had been reported like the last three winters, I think, one had been reported out there. And so I just went out there with my spotting scope and looked through all the myrrh flocks and eventually picked a couple out. Um, and so next year is going to be a city grouse to see if I can find one of those. Did you end up seeing any thick-billed myrrhs when you are out fishing? I believe I saw one. Um, I didn't have all the myrrh flocks that I looked at. I didn't. Um, see any thick-billed murs in, but I didn't look at those flocks of birds super closely all the time. Um, I mean, we went by St. Lazaria plenty. Um, we went by there almost every day, drove by it on the inside or the outside of it. Um, especially if the weather was bad, we would come in along and cruise off and tuck inside the, come inside of St. Lazaria and then head into town from there. Um, but I didn't, I think I only ever saw one out there. I saw plenty of puffins. It was fun seeing the horned puffins out by Sitka Point and the tufted puffins by St. Lazaria and out there. So for the winter, you have you don't have any sort of ambitions for the, for the winter season? I guess your first first target is, is spring spring grouse. Well, I might get impatient and go looking for the grouse in the winter when they're harder to find. I might decide that it's time to go trekking up a hill slope and walking around through the trees in the snow to see if I can't find one. Um, or we'll see. I might decide I'm just too lazy to do that and we'll wait for it in the springtime. I do know that we have our Christmas bird coming, a Christmas bird count coming up in a month, four weeks from from the day this is airing. And my next show, if everything works out, I'll be speaking with Victoria and Jen as our sort of annual pre-Christmas bird count conversation for my show. And so the Christmas bird count will be on the 18th. I know in the past you've done some bird walks that people have enjoyed just going out and, uh, you know, with an open open for anybody that wants to come along. Are you planning to do any of those this, this year? I was thinking about it. I haven't made a hard set plan that I will, but I was thinking I'd probably do one or two of those again. So if if those were to occur, it seems like probably they'd be the weekends before maybe the weekend of the fourth and the weekend or the weekend of the third and fourth and then the the weekend of the eleventh. Yeah, and then I guess you could theoretically do one on the seventeenth. That's count count weekend, and anything that you saw that wasn't seen on count day would be on the eighteenth, which is count day. So yeah, if if you're gonna do that, I guess. I'll probably, since you don't really do social media of any sort, and maybe maybe I'll uh, get it posted on social media for folks on the Sitka Birds Facebook group. I uh, might mention it in Sitka Chatters, uh, and maybe I'll try to get it on the community calendar uh, for Raven Radio if I get that motivated and ambitious. But yeah, it is a good time of year to get out. It's been a nice, as I mentioned at the top, there's been some nice birds around. Our wintering birds are all pretty much here. The swans have arrived. The scops seems like it's been slow this year. I have not, I saw four lesser scops on Swan Lake uh, today. And it seems like there's usually more scops in the channel than I've been seeing this year. But it's always one of those things where I'm like, well, is there really? Or am I just remembering like in December and January, they're always there, but they don't usually show up until December. And I'm just sort of 
feeling like they should be there already, but they never have been in the past. It's always a little hard to know because I just remember them being there in the winter. And in my mind, it's like, well, it's winter time. They should be there. Even though, strictly speaking, we're still in the very end of fall by birding season standards. Uh, but definitely things have started to settle in and still some things moving through. I still have some hopes of seeing like an American tree sparrow, which I haven't haven't seen yet this year. And you never know. One year there was a um, black-headed grosbeak that was around into January even. So things can show up and and often they show up in strange places. In uh, this, this fall, we had the a tropical kingbird that showed up along Edgecombe Drive was seen only for one day, but was up there. Uh, that was the only time anybody saw it that I know of. It could have been around for a long time before that. I don't know. Maybe it was just there for one day. Happened to be up there and just a random neighborhood. And, you know, there's the places that we check, which are the best places. You know, if you want to go look for birds, the the beach at Totem Park, you know, Castle Hill in the fall, the old airport road for the open area at some times of year, the golf course, Stargav, and all these places that we go that are like the best places. But birds don't. And that just means that you're most likely to find interesting birds there relative to any other particular spot. But if you take all the other spots combined, you're much more likely to find something outside of those areas than in those areas. So it has been an interesting exercise in trying to remember, okay, I should probably walk around some neighborhoods and see. And part of the idea is if any of any listeners are out there have bird feeders up. Birds will often join with the juncos, especially songbirds, and move around because the juncos seem to know what they're doing. And so if you're seeing any unusual birds, I'd definitely love to hear about it. You know, please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com. It is how I found out about a number of the birds, the Sandhill Crane, somebody emailed me about first and was able to see that. Uh, the Hearman Skull, somebody initially reported, and then um, that was another new bird for here. Not the first time it's been reported here this year, but for me, I got four new birds here in Sitka this year. I found a Bartail Godwood in the spring, and then in the fall, got the uh, Hearman Skull and a black and white warbler that showed up at Castle Hill for a couple of days, and then a sharp-tailed sandpiper, which showed up over near the airport. You know, all of those, well, I, I guess I saw the black, tail, black and white warbler, but the other three were birds that other people reported and I heard about. So that is one of the things. There's a lot of potential, potentially birds are moving through at any time. And it's one of those things where it's nice to, nice to hear about them. There are a number of us in town, Connor included, that want to see birds that they haven't seen before. And so if you happen to see one, uh, sooner is better, as it turns out. Mountain Bluebird was another one. That showed up, and I guess I didn't. Somebody else was actually there at the same time and saw it and pointed it out to me. Um, and somebody else, it turns out, had seen it earlier in the day, but I didn't know that until later. And so, yeah, always fun to kind of see what's out there. Anything that's kind of like on your wish list for for Sitka birds? You mentioned that the the grouse is the regularly occurring one that you hope to see, but what are some, or are there any that you're like, well, it's unlikely, but it'd be cool if I could see it. Black and white warbler. Well, that's the first the first one that ever showed up here, and the only the twelfth record for Alaska. So I mean, yeah, I uh, mean, wh- why why stop there? Why not go with something that's never been reported for Alaska and get your third state record? I mean, I could, but I'll be a little more realistic than that. Um, let's see, um, McKay's bunting would be nice. I think those show up along Kenai in Kenai Peninsula. Um, I think most winters there's one or two up there, and so it seems like they could show up down here. 
And I can't really, I mean, there's lots of birds that are on the list, but I can't really think of any that are under the pretense of likely, even close to likely. Pretty much all fall into the category like that black and white warbler where it's like, well, it could happen, but... Well, I think the black and white warbler is on the on the very unlikely side of things. I think there's some like a gear falcon, for example. Oh yeah, yeah, would that, be one that would be a nice one. I'd like to see that. That would be a possibility. I'd like to see a better look at a rough legged hawk, uh, which is another one that's been here. I've I've seen one, but it was one of those that was high in the sky, and because of the you know, I guess because of all the work people did doing hawk watches, identifying birds that are far away and high up, it was still good enough to identify but not not a great picture. I think there's probably some other birds I'd have to look at the list and, and see. For me, for this season, you know, for other seasons, there's certainly Blackpool Warbler would be the number one on my list as, as things that is likely to occur or does occur. I just haven't seen yet. It's the most regularly occurring species that I haven't seen. But I think gear has probably moved through here. I, I, my guess is that, strictly speaking, they're probably every few years just one that moves through, but they would be easy to overlook, easy to miss. They probably aren't spending a lot of time around. There was a dead one found, I think, by their cycling center a few years ago, wasn't there? There was a dead one found in town. I don't yeah, there was, a, it was there was yeah one exactly. was found in the in the woods there uh, behind Hames, uh, an Im- immature bird. Um, that's the first documented for Sitka. There's been a handful of reports that I'm aware of where people were pretty sure they'd seen one but hadn't didn't get any pictures and didn't document. In fact, you thought you saw one yeah, at one point. So. There was there's a bird that I saw at the lake a couple times actually that was very falcon like large falcon like, very pale, but my camera didn't work fast enough and so it was like it'd be in and out, it'd fly the edge of the lake and then it would disappear into the trees and I couldn't eliminate I could eliminate peregrine, but I couldn't eliminate goshawk. Um, it flew fast. It seemed like jerk potentially, but it was not one of those. Having never seen one before and having it be as unusual as it is around here, that's one of those where you mark down on the side list, like possibly seen, but no evidence other than it didn't seem like anything else. Yeah, over the years, there are a number of birds that I've seen which... I know they were birds, and they seemed unusual. It's hard to be 100% sure that they were unusual, but, you know, the mysteries, I guess, shall we say. And intriguing mysteries, um, things that I saw or things that people reported as something. I'm like, well, maybe, but um, that, that we, need, we need more evidence than, than I have to, to be confident in, in those IDs. So, yeah, it is, it is one of those things. Well, anything you'd like to mention here before we wrap up? Mm, no, I think that was all. Well, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a conversation with my son, Connor. We are recording this Saturday, the day before it airs. As we mentioned a little while ago, he will probably be doing a couple of bird walks in advance of the Christmas bird count. The Christmas bird count happens this year on the 18th of December. So look for that in the coming weeks. I'll try to mention it on my next show here in a couple of weeks and um, put it on Facebook and, and potentially also on the community calendar here for Raven Radio. 
As always, appreciate you joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week, and I'll look forward to being back in a couple of weeks as we will be getting ever nearer to that winter solstice time and the shift back to increasing daylight. Until then, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCW Sitka.